This special episode of What Works is brought to you by Mighty Networks. Mighty Networks powers brands and businesses like yours that bring people together. With a Mighty Network, you can bring your website, your content, your courses, your community, your events online and in real life all together in one place. And you can charge for them too, all while building your brand. Visit MightyNetworks.com to see examples of brands bringing people together and taking their businesses to the next level. Well, we've made it 200 episodes. What started out as a crazy idea in a small conference room in Seattle is now a top business podcast that has been producing weekly episodes for coming up on four years. Now, when I asked my producer and husband, Sean, what we should do for this momentous occasion, he said, why not do an episode on what it takes to actually stick with something for that long? Well, why not indeed? Now, I am under no delusion that 200 episodes or four years of production is any great feat of endurance or persistence. And yet, in a world where things change so quickly, where a business can launch out of nowhere one day and go bankrupt the next day, it does feel important. And while the podcast might be coming up on its fourth birthday, I've been serving small business owners now for over a decade. And many of my friends have too. We've seen fads come and go. We've seen gurus rise and fall. We've been through divorces, babies, marriages, major moves, and even deaths. We've even seen many of the business owners we thought were going to make it decide to close up shop and pursue a different path. You're listening to What Works, the show that brings you candid conversations with small business owners about what it really takes to run and grow a business today. I'm your host, Tara McMullen. Now, the candid conversation I wanted to have for our 200th episode was about how we navigate the inevitable rough patches in our businesses. How do we weather the ups and downs of sticking with things over 5, 10, 15 years, or even more? I wanted to talk not only about the logistical and operational aspects of making it through from a dip to the next success, but the mental minefield we tiptoe through on our way to the other side. I knew that one business owner's perspective wouldn't be enough to do this conversation justice. So we decided to talk to six long-standing entrepreneurs from a variety of industries and business models. Each brings their own perspective, their own circumstances, and their own emotions to the topic. You'll hear from Kathleen Shannon, the co-founder of a branding agency, Jason Harrison, the co-founder of a personal training studio, and Laura Sims, the creator of a career coaching program. You'll also hear from Molly Mayhar, a coach for women finding their joy, Esme Wang, a New York Times bestselling author and mentor for ambitious people living with limitations, and Megan Amon, a jeweler and metalsmith. While each of these stories is distinct... They share an important theme, which I believe is central to weathering the ups and downs of entrepreneurship over the long haul. Each of these stories contains some element of essentialism, recognizing the highest value of the business and the business owner and eliminating everything that doesn't serve that value. Now, in his book, Essentialism, Greg McEwen writes, saying no is its own leadership capability. Now, throughout these stories, you'll hear business owners recognize the importance of no and step up their leadership to get their businesses and their lives back on track. And I think at this point, we all recognize the importance of saying no to an opportunity that doesn't fit our vision. But how many of us are practiced in the art of saying no to something we've been doing for a while or even something we've always done? How good are you at recognizing a no that's making you money or bringing in new customers? How good are you at recognizing a no that takes the form of an unhelpful relationship or a plan you're already halfway through? Pay attention to all the times these business owners had to say no to open up a new chapter of success. Not just the obvious surface level no's, but the quiet internal no's too. Listen for the habits that were changed and the perspectives that got shifted. And then listen for the yes at the heart of each of these stories. Now, a quick note before we get started, there is some strong language in the second half of the show. And now let's find out what works when it comes to weathering the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. 
Kathleen Shannon is the co-founder of Braid Creative, a boutique branding and business visioning agency and the co-host of Being Boss, the hit small business podcast. Now, I've known Kathleen for years, and I've had an inside look at many of the ups and downs of her businesses. We once even made a virtual coffee date to talk about the multi-level marketing expose podcast, The Dream, during a holiday break. So she was a natural pick to help me start this conversation about the ups and downs of being in business over the long haul. When I asked Kathleen to tell me about a time when business wasn't going as planned, she told me about the Braid Method e-course. Braid launched their e-course about five years ago as a DIY version of their signature service package. Creating the course was a challenge. The Braid Method is a really collaborative process. It leverages the greatest strengths of the people behind it, and it's not a one, two, three-step process for creating a strong brand. So each year, Kathleen would take customer feedback and conversations and make the course a little better and a little better. She made it more compact, added Q&A calls, created a Notes version to get people unstuck, and even added an audio version based on her experience in podcasting. Then, around this time last year, it was time to do it all again. I knew for us this meant probably changing platforms for user experience, maybe creating a funnel to automate sales, and probably adding in some video since we were no longer doing the quarterly calls. And then I got tired, right? So <laughs> this really allowed me to take a closer look to see really if the e-course itself was working or not. So my goal for the e-course once upon a time was for it to make up 50% of our revenue. I thought that that would be incredible, you know, hashtag passive income. <laughs> but this was also whenever I was interested in only making $300,000 a year for our company. Like that would be completely sustainable for all of our incomes and to um, not be working our asses off all the time. But our company has grown. It's actually probably more than tripled in size. So whenever I started assessing how much our e-course was actually making, it was a whole lot less than that original goal of $150,000. And our company had grown to a level where the amount of money it was making that the e-course was making compared to the revenue we were making was nominal. Like I'm talking maybe one to 2% of our total revenue. All of this really had me looking at my role in our business, did I really want to spend my time iterating and marketing the course? Is there a way that I could better use my time to serve my company and my clients? Kathleen decided to shut down the course. She couldn't imagine putting in the work to iterate and evolve it again. And it wasn't meeting its goals for the business anymore. And so, you know, there had been conversations about it previously, but on the day that I decided to shut it down, I think I was in a partner's meeting and I just said, hey, it's time to iterate it or shut it down. And I really feel like we should shut it down. And I gave my reasons why. And it felt honestly like a like a weight had been lifted. It would be easy to feel like the decision to shut down a line of business is a defeat, a failure even. But Kathleen looked at it differently. She examined the results that it created for Braid Creative as a whole, like helping to clarify their approach to branding as an agency. She also looked at why she created the course in the first place, to offer a more affordable way of accessing the Braid method. Not only had the course done that, but because she had that goal, she had done so much more, like starting the Being Boss podcast and posting in-depth articles on the Braid Creative blog. When I asked her how the decision made her feel, she didn't respond with anxiety or disappointment. There was no roller coaster of emotions. She told me she felt clear and resolved. But what I didn't anticipate was how my following would feel. So I decided to send out a blog post and a newsletter all about how we were shutting down the e-course, which is funny because that was like the best week of sales I've ever had. <laughs> Take something away from people and then they want it. But it was really bittersweet for a lot of our e-course customers as well because they got so much out of it. They got so much out of that course and what we had to offer. And I think that they were sad to see it go. So I spent a lot of time answering emails one-on-one -on -one saying, hey, your experience was real and it was valid and I'm so glad it was helpful for you. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing. I also wanted to know how closing the Braid Method e-course had impacted Braid overall. Perhaps surprisingly, Braid had been growing this whole time. Business was good, like really good. 
but it had often been growing with Kathleen's attention on other things, things that weren't contributing to that growth. That meant that the biggest impact on Braid has been how Kathleen sees her role in the business. Closing the e-course really made me reconsider you know, my role within the company. And what it means for us is that I'm more engaged in the one-on-one work now versus the one-to-many work. And in some ways, it's probably because the one-to-many stuff has been systemized enough that I can show up and do it. So then what am I doing the rest of the time? It doesn't take as much work for me to reach as many people as it once did. Um, So really for me, it means that I'm getting my hands back in the work again. I am looking at our systems and processes, which also doesn't come easy for me, but I'm looking at how we engage with clients who are potential clients who are interested in working with us. I'm the person that is personally answering those emails again. Um, I'm doing a lot more design work again. I'm pushing some pixels and I'm loving it. So for me, it really just means that I'm back in it with my coworkers. Like I feel like I'm in the trenches again with my partners, with my coworkers, and with my clients. And the theme that I'm really seeing here is going back to the roots of where I started and the stuff that was working for me then, right? I think I became a little obsessed with scaling like all of us in the online space have and trying all the things, the automations, the drip marketing, the funnels, and just coming, stripping all of it away. And so really just going back to the roots of one of the things I've always said is just give it all away for free. So going back to the roots of giving it all away for free, unless you want to hire me and then I'm expensive, Um, but there's no more middle ground. And I feel really good about that. Braid Creative is better off for shutting down the e-course because the thing that we've always offered and have continued to offer is the braid method one-on-one with our clients. And I won't say that the e-course was a distraction. I think it was trying on a different platform for delivering the braid method. But whenever it comes down to do it, our clients get the best of us when they get us. And so now that I'm more back in the system, our whole company is better off for it. Plus, I'm a bomb-ass designer. Now, like Kathleen said, the Braid Method e-course wasn't a distraction, even if it didn't ultimately prove to be the right move for the business. Many of the small business owners I talked to touched on this. They explored something new for really good reasons. What eventually became a no presented itself as a solid yes initially. Now, in hindsight, it might look like they got distracted by shiny object syndrome or got bored with an already successful business. But at the time they made the decision to try something new, there were real strategic and mission-driven reasons why they did it. Laura Sims is the founder of Your Career Homecoming, a career change mentorship program that helps people figure out what the right career is for them. But back in 2016, Laura was also offering a program with Michelle Ward, the When I Grow Up coach, called 90 Day Business Launch. This program let Laura work with a different segment of clients, aspiring business owners, as well as collaborate with a friend on some really hands-on work. So what we would we would give to clients is this monster document of, okay, you've told us all about your business idea. Here's the business plan. We're going to write down everything that you need to do to launch this business in the next 90 days. Here's your messaging. Here's the kind of vocabulary you should use. Here's your tagline. Here's your marketing plan. Like here's what the pages you should put on your website, the whole thing. And then here's the milestones you need to go do that within the next 90 days. Um, so it was, it was really great to be doing that kind of hands-on boutique work with clients. And Michelle and I would like jam out on the shared Google doc, you know, for four hours at a time coming up with all this stuff. And as you might imagine, really hard to scale at that level. You know, we were providing a, a really amazing service, but if we were doing a business plan, that's like all I could do that entire day because it was so intensive and it just zapped our brains so much. While this program ticked a lot of boxes for Laura, it also took up a lot of time. It just got to the point where even though the program was selling out, even though it didn't feel hard to fill the spots, even though it was super fun to work with Michelle, even though it was amazing to see our clients launch and their confidence grow and their businesses start, on paper, all of that stuff worked great. And 
it just, it started to feel like a drag on the rest of my business. And so I went in and I started looking at the time I was devoting to 90 day business, business launch. And it was a lot of time. And then I looked at the money that what we were making from 90 day business launch and it was okay. Um, but I just started to think if I took that time back, what could I do with it? And, you know, you have one of those realizations where you're like, oh no, now that the thought has crossed my mind, now that the truth has like run across the front of my brain, I actually have to, to deal with it. And I knew at a certain point, I'm going to have to leave 90 day business launch, which is one thing if it's an offering you are offering, you know, solo, it's another thing to turn to your friend and your colleague and say, Hey, you know, this thing that's bringing in $40,000 for both of us every year that maybe your family is relying on. I need to step away from that. Once Laura realized what she needed to do, she needed to actually have the conversation. Laura sent Michelle a classic, we need to talk text. Then when they were on the phone, Laura told Michelle, can't believe I'm even saying this because, you know, I love you and I love working with you and I love our clients and I need this to be the last round that I do this. And um, she was wonderful and amazing, of course. And, and she just said, I, you know, I kind of thought this might be coming. She said, I, you know, I'm feeling some similar stuff in my own business and feeling like I need to pull out of some collaborations and, and be more, you know, building something a little more focused on my end too. Um, so there was no like drama, there was no friction, but it was just very bittersweet, you know, to come to this place of, we have this great thing. And for our own businesses, we both need to be able to move on from it. It just got to the point where it was one of those knowings that I, this is kind of just how it needs to be that yes, I was nervous to talk about, you know, it with talk about it with her. But, um, you know, part of the conversation too was me saying, you know what, we've built this really cool thing and I'm ready to step away. I want to go put all my eggs in the Your Career Homecoming basket. But if you want to take this intellectual property that we've developed together and take it and run with it, I gift it to you. Please take this because um, I, I want to focus somewhere else. Um, so it felt nice just to kind of like fully hand the baton off to her and, and let it be hers. Laura and Michelle were transparent and direct about the change. They told their followers what was happening and what would come next. And that meant Laura could double down on your career homecoming. Ever since then, your career homecoming has been my only offer. And I have never looked back. Um, I, I, I'm one of those people who read the book Essentialism five years ago and was like, this is my life now. So <laughs> I really like having things lean and mean and clean and... And I am also one of those people who this would drive some people crazy and be terrible for their business. But I really like going deep on one thing. I like that I have been wrestling with the same question and, you know, iterating on the same offer for almost eight years now. Um, for me, it's kind of like, you know, if you're a teacher in the classroom and you're always refining the curriculum and, but you're still teaching the same subject matter, but every year there's a new you know, class of students. And so it's, it's going through that discovery process with them. It's, it's being able to, to polish the stone and to look, you know, from different angles when you're looking through a new client's eyes at, at how this thing works. So I, I love that. I love being able to focus on that, to focus my message, to focus my, my content, like everything is geared towards one kind of person with one kind of problem, and I got one kind of solution. <laughs> so I like what that has done um, for my work. It also, I feel like just keeps, I don't know, there's like just less brain baggage to, to, to deal with just knowing that like, this is, this is my thing. For me, that works really well. Now, at this point, you might be wondering, as I was, how this impacted business for Laura. I asked her if she'd made up the revenue yet, and she told me she'd already surpassed the revenue she was generating through 90-Day Business Launch. With, with the two launches of 90-Day Business Launch cleared off my calendar, I decided to change up my business model a little bit. And so instead of just adding in more launches of your career homecoming, um, I moved it so that enrollment is on a rolling basis. So basically, I can accept clients at any time. I don't have to do these big, massive launches. Um, 
And I can, you know, just be inviting new folks in whenever, whenever I'm up for it, whenever I feel like there's space in the program, I have enough brain space to, to manage, you know, mentoring everybody. And I think also just being able to focus in my message, focus in my website, like people come to the website, it's either for them or it's not, you know? And so if someone's on my, my list, like either they're a good client for me or, or, or they're not, um, I have found it strangely, maybe not strangely, just even easier to, to make money. Um, but because I think people don't have any question mark about what it is I do and should they consider it. For Laura, her experience with creating and quitting a line of business wasn't a single lesson learned once. This experience is shaping her approach to her business every day. It's been a good confirmation that when I know something, I, I know something. And even if it takes a while to execute on it, to really listen and pay attention because it, that, that thing is probably not going away. And then the other thing, you know, it's just really helped me trust um, being, keeping my business lean and simple and, and really doing what's necessary and essential. There's a lot of stuff that I could be doing that I don't because I'm always looking at what do I need to do, have to do to get the right people in, you know, in, in the, the amount of clients that's going to work for me? What do I need to do to get the business I have to the business I want to, and then just stop doing everything else? Kathleen and Laura both discovered that good ideas can often take you away from the opportunity at the core of your business. Jason Harrison, a personal trainer, strength coach, and the co-founder, along with his wife, Susan Harrison, and yoga teacher, Anna Shearer of Present Tense Fitness in Dayton, Ohio, had a similar experience. Jason has been in the fitness industry for over a decade now and opened his gym about three years ago. He leads with a non-dogmatic, thoughtful, highly researched approach, and it's clear he has a passion for sharing that with others. And like Laura and Kathleen, Jason saw an opportunity to share that passion and approach with a new group of people. So in 2017, Jason launched a daily fitness newsletter that he planned to grow into a paid subscription. Not only would the newsletter allow him to share his approach with more people, it would provide a base for the business that went beyond Dayton. The way it worked is I would, you know, I start training at seven, often end at seven, and then I would have to write, um, you know, like an eight or 900 word column every night um, to deliver to people's inbox the next morning. And so I did that for an entire year. Um, and it didn't, you know, we were able to, we slowly started growing some subscriptions, but it was, it was looking back on it, it, it felt like a diversion from, um, from the core of what we do and who we are, which is to take the people that we see and help them in, individually. Um, and you know, we, we tried to, we tried to use that platform to deliver a philosophy around the holistic nature of fitness and wellness. And so, you know, some of those newsletters, you know, you'd get a newsletter and it would just be about, you know, sometimes squat mechanics. And then sometimes the newsletter would be about the, the interconnected nature of global ag agricultural patterns. I mean, we, it really ran the, the gamut of, of topics. I asked Jason to tell me about the day he realized that the 15 or 16 hour workdays just weren't working out. I don't know that the client would say this, but I felt myself sort of like snapping at, at a client uh, and, you know, not in an overtly mean or malicious way, but I just, I felt myself with a lack of patience. At the end of that day, I went home and I said, okay, like, this is not good. Like, this is the work. These are the people who've come to you. They're in front of you. They're paying you money. They expect empathy and attention to detail and individualization. And this writing project is beginning to take away from that. And so then I decided, you know, that that's when I just started, I allowed myself to imagine basically admitting failure in a way, like this project didn't work. We didn't grow subscriptions. It didn't enhance the business in any way, but it was liberating to allow myself to go there. Jason took his realization to his business partners. I mean, I think they understood. And I think, you know, to some degree, I think they also pushed me to think through the sustainability of it. So, and, and, and 
in some ways they were kind of they've kind of got there first like do you really think this is something that we ought to be doing or that you ought to be doing um in terms of, of a sustainability standpoint so you know quite apart from you know they it wasn't it wasn't that i had to pitch it to them they were i think they were there already once the decision was made, the next steps were obvious. Jason stopped writing and started to reclaim his time. But he didn't stop there. He knew there was a bigger opportunity that he hadn't been able to pursue while he was splitting his time between training and getting the newsletter off the ground. And that was his core business. In order to take advantage of that, Jason and his partners decided to put their energy into getting better at what they did. They honed their craft. In 2018, you know, we started investing, um, I think the three of us in our individual ways in just getting better at what we do. And so there, you know, there wasn't a whole lot that changed really. I mean, hopefully my clients didn't really recognize much of a shift. It, it, you know, I just had more slots available. Um, and lo and behold, I filled those slots. And lo and behold, as you know, we see more people here, we get better. I mean, that's, you know, for somebody starting out in the fitness industry, the best possible advice I could give is see as many people as humanly possible. Um, because that'll give you, it, it just pushes you forward incrementally. When you see somebody who has poor scapular movement on their rib cage, well, you've seen it dozens of times. And so you've, you've not only seen it dozens of times, but you're able to think of different cues that work with different people. I was working with a young um, dancer this morning. And, you know, we, we are at, actually, the reason I thought of that as a, as an example is that was a specific issue that she was having uh, just on her right side. I came up with a cue to use with her that made things click for her. And then she was able to, to get the movement I was looking for. Jason and his partners are looking to continue the growth, both professional growth and business growth they've experienced over the last year. They know that doubling down on what's already working puts them in the best position to help the people they want to serve. That newsletter was planting an entirely new tree of a different species and, you know, it needed different soil. And so rather than planting a new tree, we're just trying to grow branches off of the tree that exists. And, you know, maybe five years from now, we're in a position where like people would want a newsletter from us, but we're just not there yet. Um, we need to grow from, from the root of who we are, which is seeing people, helping people, getting them to incrementally move better, to be more intentional about that movement, be more intentional about sleep, be more intentional about nutrition. That's the roots of who we are. And so the opportunities we're seeking in 20. 19, 2020, 2021 are going to grow from that root. And the stronger that those roots are, the stronger that tree is, the stronger those, those new possibilities will be. Kathleen, Laura, and Jason all shared stories about times when they, for very legitimate reasons, stepped outside the scope of their businesses to try something new. They found varying levels of success with their ventures, but ultimately realized that the biggest opportunities were actually with what they'd been doing all along, whether that was collaborative branding services, career mentorship, or personal training. Once they got back to their core businesses, they found the motivation and the fuel to grow. Now, the next three stories are a bit different. They're less about the nuts and bolts of streamlining a business model and making the best of their biggest opportunity, more about the mind games that happen when you're in business for the long haul. They're stories about burnout, identity, and even grief. Now, we'll get into the second half of the show in just a minute, but first, let's take a quick break to hear about our What Works partner. What Works is brought to you by Mighty Networks. Mighty Networks powers brands and businesses like yours that bring people together. You started your small business with an idea and it's grown and grown. And now that you've built programs, events, online courses, and even a community, you realize that this growth has gotten a little out of hand. Your work and your customers are spread out over a bunch of different tools and platforms. Your content lives in a few different places. Your community hangs out somewhere else. Your products have grown up on yet another platform and your payments, well, they're all over the place. 
Starting a Mighty Network can change all that. Mighty Networks makes it easy to bring your content, products, community, events, and payment processing all together. We use Mighty Networks to power the What Works Network. We share exclusive content, interact with members using questions and polls, host events like virtual conferences, and accept membership fees. Mighty Networks has made our whole business tidier. Start growing your business all in one place and finally see what your seed can grow into. Go to MightyNetworks.com to get started. Mighty Networks is the easiest way to take your business to the next level. Now, if you value the candid conversations we have here on the podcast about the ups and downs and ins and outs of small business, you're going to love the What Works Network. The What Works Network is your access to real talk about how small businesses actually work. We don't go in for the hype, the blueprints, or the magic formulas. Our members share their mindset shifts, their behind-the-scenes planning, and the systems behind their successes. We also get real about what's not working, so we can troubleshoot it together and look for alternative paths forward. When you join the What Works Network, you not only get access to candid conversations like these in our private community, you get exclusive access to our live monthly flash masterminds, our monthly insider hour Q&A calls with me, community roundtable discussions, and our quarterly virtual conferences. Now, membership is open for just a few days to celebrate our 200th episode and to make it even easier to see if the What Works Network is perfect for you. If you join now through April 26, 2019, you can take advantage of a free seven-day trial. To get all the details, go to explorewhatworks.com slash network. That's explorewhatworks.com slash network. Molly Mayhar is the founder of Stratajoy, an online community for women to reclaim their joy and the authentic meaning in their lives. She's been at it for over 10 years. Now, about two years ago, Molly realized she was overwhelmed and burnt out. She was running a successful 14-woman mastermind called Elevate, hosting a bona fide summer camp, and building the next iteration of her work, a program called Reclamation. She started her business to claim a lifestyle without the late nights, without skipping kids' school activities, without all the hustle and bustle of the corporate career she had originally started with. And yet here she was. Molly toyed with all sorts of ways to scale back and create a more focused, manageable business. She considered hiring people, but the idea of managing people made her skin crawl. She considered giving up on the hands-on work, like moderating her Facebook group but she loved that stuff. She considered shutting down two core pieces of her business, Elevate, her mastermind, and her summer camp. But the logic of sticking with that revenue kept her locked in. I asked her when she realized something had to give. Based on the things that were going on with my husband's business, and it didn't make any sense to cut my income in half. And that's really how it felt in the moment. So I had actually, even though I was feeling like I was done with Elevate, or I was going to let Elevate go in order to um, see what Reclamation could do, I had made the opposite decision and said, I'm going to do it one more time. I'm going to, I have it in me to do one more year of both of these. I launched Elevate. I was taking applications. I actually had accepted two or three people and taken their very giant deposits of money. And I woke up, I think after two of the, two of the deposits had come into my bank account and I woke up the next morning, literally feeling sick, like let me vomit in the toilet sick. And I think that was the moment it hit me that it wasn't fair to them to be doing this just because I should, because it makes sense. Like I had never experienced that in the five years of of Elevate that like, this is just business. And I, when I knew who they were and I had their money, I was like, oh no, oh no, 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 no. I can't do this. So I had to eat a little crow and call, I called, well, first I'd called those women and um, apologized and said, hey, this is not how I want to show up for you. And I'm not going to be running Elevate. Here's your money back. <laughs> I'm so sorry. And then I literally called every single person that had already applied who'd, who'd spent, you know, a big chunk of their time and their heart space and their anxiety level filling out this giant application for me. Um, and even though I hadn't accepted them yet, I wanted to tell them what was going on. So I I called about 30 people and told them that I was not doing Elevate. And then I wrote my public blog post. And that was that. Is there anything that sticks with you after this time, uh, looking back on those conversations? 
Well, yeah, it's actually an immense feeling of gratitude because Stratajoy is based on being honest and transparent and kind of self-aware of what's going on with you. So I always am so thankful that in my business, I get to show up with whatever is actually happening. And that is appreciated. In those conversations, people were saying, well, that sucks for me, but thanks for walking your talk. Like, what a great example of being honest, trying to trust yourself, you know, all these things that I teach. Here I was, like, truly modeling it, as embarrassing as it may have been for me. (laughs) With the decision to not host Elevate Another Year, Molly was not in the clear. Far from it. Her journey to rebuilding her business in a way that didn't overwhelm her or burn her out was really just beginning. Now it was time to reimagine her business. Well, so then that next year, the the way I was wording it, wording it in my head was all roads lead to reclamation. So if this is going to be the pinnacle strategy journey, how do I help communicate that in how we talk and what the website looks like? So it forced me to spend a year streamlining. And that was really good for me because, you know, I'd made several new looking websites over the years, but it would literally like the same back end just rolled in with a shiny new front front face. And so it was just this bloated disaster. I mean, it was like literally slow, super slow. It had, um, I used to have guest bloggers who would blog for me. So I had something like um, 3,000 blog posts that were in no way applicable to what we were doing now. I just had this like tender heart. I'm like, oh, I can't get rid of them. And I was like, nope, all roads lead to reclamation. We are streamlining. So new website, new back end. At this point, looking back, what is, I don't know, 18 months later, it's starting to turn into what feels like a real um, functioning business instead of a, what does what's Molly interested in? Let's just launch something around that. It's like, this is what I sell. How do I get better at both selling it and serving the people who are showing up? Instead of let's create something new and let's create something new again and something new again. I'm like, oh no, this is what I want to be doing. How do I become fucking brilliant at doing it? Molly isn't just operating her business in a new way. She didn't just streamline her business model or retire old offers. Molly is looking at her business from a different perspective. She sees her role in bringing her vision to fruition in a new way. I feel clear on what I'm here to to teach. Kind of in the big scale legacy leaving, how am I using my gifts? Um, One of the things the streamlining has allowed me to do and really think about is what are my specific um, natural gifts that, that make this what this is beyond what the content is, beyond the amazing women that gather. Like, what do I do and love that needs to be showing up every day? And that has also felt a little bit different than before you know, I'm probably everyone listening, I'm super capable. I can learn anything. I can pretty much do anything. But what are the pieces that make me fucking brilliant? Like leaning more heavily on those than having pride in, oh, look, all pieces of my business are tidy and I'm doing them all. <laughs> that means that Molly doesn't have to make her role, the work she does, or the decisions she make look like anyone else's. Her new perspective and approach to her business allows her to make the right decisions for her. And as an example, I asked her what she felt she was fucking brilliant at. Yes, yes. It's it's the, the people piece. Like, I will have discussions with other coaches or people in this space where they love, well, even you, like the game of it, like making it work or um, producing a ton of content that is super like Instagrammable. (laughs) Um, Neither of those are my thing. I actually like being in my Facebook groups with the group, the people who have already gathered and uh, processing what's coming up. Like the, so the coaching, the typing, the, I do live videos. I love being live. Um, that's not scary for me or hard. So where other people like, Oh my God, I could never spend an hour in my Facebook group every day. I'm like, that's my favorite part of the day. Like that's, I love that part. So letting myself love it instead of thinking, Oh, it should look a certain way. Like I shouldn't be answering every single 
uh, comment, well, if that's what I do best, yes, I should. If that's what I love, yes, I should. So it was a little bit giving myself permission to not make it look like someone else. Of course, just because Molly is hyper-focused on being brilliant, operating her business according to the decisions that are best for her and her customers, and bringing the next iteration of her vision to life, it doesn't mean she doesn't get restless or even anxious. All this has led up to right now, this year, reminding myself that I've made all these decisions. So when the piece of me that either is getting a little restless or a little bored or a little anxious that I'm not doing all the things, I keep coming back to like, I've made this decision. This, you know, this feels a bit like a year of mastery for me and my life. And instead of letting myself get bored, I am trying to go deeper. It's like all the, there, everything's in place. The new website is built. The, the branding is, you know, just recommitted to the program is running don't distract yourself by thinking you need to create something new. Like go deeper, get better, show up with more presence and more. <laughs> One of my ways of being is badass and brilliant, which is why I said that like 17 times. And and reminding myself that this is what I wanted. Like this is what I created. Don't get distracted. Eyes in your own paper. Keep going. Keep doing it. Molly knew what she wanted from her business, but she let quote unquote good business decisions, cloud her judgment, and lead her down a path that wasn't working for her. The more she focuses on what she wants, both for herself and for her business, the clearer she is about her path forward. Esme Weizhang Wang was in a similar situation. Esme is a writer, now a New York Times bestselling author for her essay collection, The Collected Schizophrenias. She's also the founder of The Unexpected Shape, which provides resources for ambitious people living with limitations. Now, Esme wanted to be a writer, but she kept pursuing what seemed like more reasonable career paths. This period lasted a really long time. I'm actually just kind of starting to make my way out of this period. And it was um, a, a time in which I could not get the author part of me or the writer part of me to uh, mix with the business owner part of me, um, where the two parts just could not meld. In, and so I would end up... Uh, having the business part of me um, doing these services that I really hated doing. Um, I, I ended up doing a lot of editing work um, because that's what I did when I was working for a startup before I uh, started working for myself. Um, people would approach me and ask, will you edit these books for me? I ended up coaching people through book proposals. It was all like fairly successful in terms of being able to help people, but I really hated doing it. The way she saw it, Esme had a writing life and a business life. They were separate and both equally necessary, if not equally enjoyable. I wanted to know what created that disconnection. I, I didn't understand that they could be the same thing or that I could have them connect to each other. Um, I, I have a very... Um, how do I say it? Like kind of a structured mind or I, I'm very prone to compartmentalization. Um, it, I, I really like to um, envision things in a very structured way. It really helps me to keep my life in order mentally. So I kind of siloed my projects into different mental partitions. Um, so the writing was over here and the business was over there. And I never thought of them as being um, in possibly the same thing or, or related to one another. I think anyone who's felt the pressure of dueling interests can relate to Esme here. She saw the potential for both. She saw the need for both, but something wasn't right. And it was holding her back from both a greater sense of fulfillment and from more success. I just felt so confused. Um, I, I really wanted them both to be successful at the same time. Um, I 
uh, I only have so many hours in the day, just like everybody else does. I also live with illness and disability. So that really cut down on the time and the energy that I had to spend on those things. Um, I also was trying to figure out things like how much money am, am I making on this versus that. Um, it was it was all very confusing and very frustrating. And I felt like, you know, a ver- like it really affected my self-esteem. I, I was very much like, you know, why can I not do this? What's wrong with me? It wasn't until, um, you know, some of my colleagues started saying things like, well, you know, you had a feature in People Magazine. Did that uh, increase your newsletter subscriptions? Uh, and I, I realized, uh, yeah, they increased by like hundreds. Um, <laughs> that I was like, oh, wait, maybe this is actually, these things are connected. Um, or the idea that like, being a successful writer or being a su- successful author and living with late stage Lyme disease, as well as schizoaffective disorder, which is what I wrote my second book about, um, is an example of being an ambitious person living th- with limitations. So, um, you know, it was kind of, it took a, a bit of um, talking to other business owners, talking to colleagues, talking to people who could see things outside of um, the situation, you know, people who had more perspective than just me, who was like kind of in it, um, that really helped. You know, I had been talking about trying to find a VA to help me with my business. Um, but then I ended up um, putting that off and instead relying on my publicist and my speaking agent and my literary agent and kind of looking at them and how they operate things for the author side of me um, really also helped me to understand how that works for just business in general. Um, Because, you know, if I'm making a deal with um, a certain company, which, you know, I am to go and speak for $10,000, I that is also business. Um, that is making money for my business as well. Um, that's something that you know extends to um, me as a speaker. Um, it just so happens that they were they became um, interested in me because of my book, if that makes sense. Um, so I think a lot of it just um, required looking at um, myself as a writer and as a business owner in a different way. Um, a friend of mine just kind of jokingly called it writerpreneur. Um, but, but that word actually helped me because, um, it was, uh, it, I think part of the problem also is that I, I do really well with models. And so a lot of the time I was look, just looking for, um, a model. Um, so I would look at like, you know, maybe Brene Brown or like Liz Gilbert or just somebody who, who I could look to, to say like, okay, maybe you've done this before and I could just like model myself after you. Um, but I, you know, I, I never quite found that model. Um, and I ended up deciding like, I'm, I might just have to be my own model. Um, and I can take some pieces here and there from other people who have done similar things, but, uh, yeah, you know, that that gave me back some of my power too was to was to decide I need to be my own model here. Esme's point about becoming her own model is quite astute. All the while she was looking for a box to fit herself into, others were seeing how she was creating value in a whole new way. Whether it was questions at a book signing or journalists doing profile pieces on her, they could see the whole woman, the writer and the business owner. I've actually been fascinated by how many interviews I've done with just like you know, they're meant to be interviews about my writing, but they then they'll bring up like rawness of remembering, which is my signature program. Um, and, and then they'll ask me about that and it'll end up being, you know, included in the article, um, which is, was, is surprising to me, but also very delightful because, um, I love that, that, um, that people are seeing that, side of things as also something that I do. Or um, when I do public readings or events, um, sometimes 
the work that I do with providing those resources um, just naturally comes up um, in terms of uh, sharing with people who love my books um, because they want something more than just the things that I'm writing. Um, they want like resources and ways to um, to help themselves. Um, and I don't write self-help books, so these resources are available to them. And I was really struggling with this idea of like book coaching and stuff like that because I thought that's what people wanted. But what I really wanted to do was write. And once I did that, um, it kind of led me back to a writing. And then once the book started to take off, um, it reminded me of, um, how I could connect all the things that I wanted to do, you know, helping people with, um, limitations who are ambitious like me, um, how I could connect all that stuff with the stuff that I really want to do, which is right. So um, I very much relate to the idea of like getting back to where you started or where you really wanted to, to, to plant your flag, so to speak. I asked Esme how she is better off as a writer, creator, and business owner today now that she's made peace with the way her life, business, and writing are intertwined. I don't know. Like, I'm so much happier. It's so much less of a slog. I mean, I just enjoy what I do so much more. I, I leap into things that, I, um, that I'm doing with so much more excitement. When I get opportunities, they're extremely exciting. Um, you know, I actually look forward to opening my email now <laughs> um, because uh, you know, I, I mean, I struggle with email just like everybody else does, but I look forward to opening email because so much of my email is just like offering me these amazing opportunities. And I feel so honored and grateful to be able to do um, all the things that I'm able to do. And I'm able to do those things because of the work that I do. Today's final story is about the unexpected way that outside circumstances can impact the way we do business. Megan Amon is a metalsmith, jeweler, and educator. You might have seen me wearing her work or caught one of her classes on Creative Live. While Megan's story starts out with a simple pricing problem, it quickly reveals itself to be a much, much deeper challenge and one that has no easy answers. I launched a collection last year. And when I say launched a, a jewelry collection, what I mean is that I actually relaunched a collection. So this was something that I made back in the early days of my business. And I, you know, it was something that got me started. And then I retired it. And last year, I kind of got this urge to bring it back. And I brought it back and it immediately was super well received. I brought back some old styles. I added some new styles in. I was super excited about it. My audience was super excited about it. Um, it was selling well. So it all seemed really, really positive. And then over the last couple of months, I have started to realize, and it was not like a lightning bolt. It was a really slow realization that I have priced this collection way too low, like so missed the mark with my pricing, which is funny because as you know, I teach pricing. That is literally one of the things that I do. And so it's one of those where I was like, oh, duh, like I got this so wrong. And now I'm in the middle of trying to fix it and basically having to like undo all of these things that I kind of set myself up for. So now I have to go back and, and really evaluate and figure out okay, why did I do this wrong? How do I make the changes? Because what happened was by pricing this collection too low, it made me doubt all of these other things in my business. Like literally I was like questioning, I'm like, should I still be doing wholesale? Why am I doing this? This is miserable. I'm so miserable doing this. And then I stepped back and I was like, oh, it's not because I hate wholesale. It's because I literally priced this collection too low. And that's what's making me miserable. Megan could easily recognize the operational and logistical challenges that pricing a product too low can create. But the repercussions went much deeper than that. Instead of celebrating her sales, she resented them. Instead of feeling abundant and successful, devaluing her time put her into survival mode. This challenge is especially tricky for Megan because, well, 
she knows better. She has a reputation of pricing for profit. She's been unapologetic about the strategy she uses to arrive at her pricing. She's created and sold multiple workshops on pricing. So I had a feeling that this pricing problem not only impacted her business in operational ways, it impacted her confidence and her self-identity. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because I like I'm always the person who is like be confident in your pricing, price higher, be confident in your pricing, like just go out and do it. And then I fell into literally the trap that I teach, which is I went for like short-term sales and pleasing my audience over what I knew was right. I literally priced it almost identical to what I was selling it at like eight years ago, 10 years ago, which is absurd for so many reasons. Um, But I think that it's actually because I was feeling like a little bit unconfident just in my business. And it's because I let too many outside voices in. Like I was listening to members of my, my audience, my customer base who are awesome, but at the end of the day, aren't my ideal customer. They are people who can't afford to pay what I need to charge. And so I was trying to please that audience instead of saying, okay, what is the best for me and my business? And then what happened was I was trying to please this audience and it worked. I pleased them. The line sold well, but then I took it to my next audience, which is my wholesale audience. And and wholesale was, has, is the backbone of my business. And it's been since almost the very beginning. And so I took it to my stores and I was like, hey, here's this line. And they were like, oh my gosh, we love it. We're so excited. Um, Since I said it at a great price point, my stores bought it. And I was like, this is amazing. And then I got home and I had to start filling those orders. And it was, oh, like this is, this is not, this is not working. Like I'm, I'm working more hours than I want to be working. I'm letting the ball drop in other areas of my business. Okay, I'm going to insert some personal commentary here. This didn't sound like the Megan Amen I've known for the last 10 years. As she said, Megan is known for her no-nonsense approach to pricing her products for profit and sustainability no matter what people say. I could tell that there was something else going on here. She mentioned that she'd made the mistake of choosing short-term sales over long-term success. She also mentioned that she was feeling less than confident and that she was listening to the wrong voices. I asked her about these mistakes and what created the opportunity for them to occur in the first place. I have been dealing with the long-term ramifications um, of my mom dying for a long time. So my mom passed away in 2012. We were super close. She was, she's the reason I'm an artist. She's the reason I'm in business. Like, just She was basically my best friend. So um, I have been dealing with that for a long time. And, and that year... Um, the year that she died, it wasn't just that she died. It was she died. Family shit happened. Uh, you actually moved across the country that year, which was which was another really hard blow for me because I lost my mom and my friend in like a span of six months. And I don't think we talk enough about like how much grief derails us, and and it just really shook me because I went from being this like very confident person to just feeling really, really lost and alone. And then I think on top of that, we have these cultural narratives where we think if you experience grief, then you have to have some sort of big aha transformational moment to come out of it. But no one talks about like what happens when you experience grief when actually your life was really good before that. Like I had really set up my life and my business the way I wanted it to be set up. So what happens when like the cultural narrative and the expectation is that you're supposed to like change and transform from grief and suddenly like I didn't actually need to do that. And so I, I, one, I spent a lot of years breaking things that didn't need to be broken. Like it was sort of my response. Um, and then I just, I felt really, really lost. And it's in one hand, it's kind of crazy to be like the mistake that I made, you know, in 2018 was a a result of what happened to me in 2012. But it, it takes a really long time to climb out of grief. And I think that we also like if you have grief patterns, and you don't work through them, then they tend to come back up again. 
I didn't realize how much, and I think a lot of us don't realize like how much coping with grief is literally just going into survival mode. So I went into survival mode in life, but I also went into it in business. So it was basically like, you know, my business is my, is how I make my living. I need that revenue. And so basically it was like, do anything you can to make money. Like whatever you have to do, just do it because it's too hard to like, to really think about the big picture. Like I just have to do what I have to do to get through. Now, I've been thinking about my own patterns a lot lately. I've noticed self-sabotage and habits of changing directions when I'm presented with a challenge I don't think I'm ready for. I'm sure you have patterns or habits you know you fall into too. They're the things you do when things are rough and they're not going according to plan. I asked Megan, now that she knows what her grief patterns are, what she's doing to ensure she doesn't fall into them again as she works to get things back on track. Yeah, you know, I think the thing that I've been trying to do the most is actually just slow down. Um, I am totally the kind of person who who can thrive, not just live, but like thrive in that like frenetic pace mode, at least for a long time. Like I'm, I've even since high school, like I'm a chronic overachiever. I like to do a million things. I can, I can totally do that. But when you do that, it doesn't leave a lot of time for processing emotion and self-reflection when you're always just like, go, go, go. If I want to slow down, I need to raise my prices so that I'm not working all the time. And so it it is, it just becomes this virtuous cycle of like, I want to slow down so that I can self-reflect. Okay, well, how am I going to do that? It's not by like trying to crank out production 40 hours a week. As I started asking myself, what would it look like if I could generate $100,000 of revenue from my jewelry in only 10 production hours a week. It's such a specific question, but I started analyzing like my day and my time and all of the things that I want to do. And I want to have some time in my studio to make every day, but I also want to do all of the other things that I want to do in my business. And I want to go for walks and I want to have hobbies and I want to see my friends. And I also coach high school track and cross country in my spare time. So like, I want to be able to do all these things. So I start, just started asking myself this question of like, well, literally, what do I have to do to make 100K in jewelry revenue in only 10 hours a week of production? And the answer was like, well, you have to raise your prices. I also immediately felt guilty for even thinking that. I was like, well, who am I to think that like I should get that? And then I was like, F that. Like I have been a metalsmith. I've been doing this for 20 years. I took my first metalsmithing class 20 years ago. I've been doing this for a long time. There is no reason that I shouldn't be making that much an hour when I sit down at my bench. So Megan's slowing down. She's raising her prices. Those things help, but it's not the whole solution. I asked her what else she's doing to get things back on track, to find her center again. And the first thing, she told me she started reading more again. I started reading a few more books again that were written by like badass women making a bunch of money because I was like, wait, I need those voices in my head again. Um, and that I like forgot how much I needed those voices to counteract like listening to the, the voices of my people because again, I need to be able to like embody that confidence and, and bring that to it. And sometimes even I need a little pep talk, right? I mean, we all need pep talks from time to time. The other thing she told me was that she's rediscovering who she is again, finding herself in a world after her mother's death. I was so shaken for a long time after my mom died and and rightly so. I you know that's that's not an easy thing to get through. And so it it really took me a, a while to get through that and and the irony is that you know when I think about like who I am and who I want to be. My mom is the is the biggest model for that. I I like to talk about that my mom she was the most caring person you will ever meet, but she didn't give a shit what anybody thought about her. And that is a really rare trait especially in a wimp, in a woman. We see we have these tendencies to like want to have everybody like us and care what people think, but at the same time like hide and not really care. And my mom was the total opposite. She she really just, she did not care what people thought about her, but she was so generous at the same time. And and that's a behavior that I wanted and I and that I want to model. And I think a lot of times that I, I do, but at the same time, 
when you lose such a, a strong influence in your life, it's really easy to be shaken. And so I, I was shaken. And I, like I said, I let all these kind of other voices and other influences in. And it just took me a long time to overcome that. So I think it's like literally getting back to the core of my identity. The longer you're in business, the more ideas, opportunities, outside voices, and even assumptions will tug at you. Some of them will be bad, and those are the easiest ones to ignore. Some of them will be good, and those might just be the hardest. And others will be so great that they help you ride out the inevitable ups and downs that come along with entrepreneurship over the long haul. I hope that the stories we've shared with you today will help you see those ups and downs in a new light. I hope that they remind you to seek out your brilliance and focus on your highest value. And I hope they help you to be gentle with yourself when you discover you've headed down the wrong path, because it's going to happen. I don't think there is any business or entrepreneur who has mastered staying on the right trail for the lifetime of their businesses. We all take a wrong turn, or many, at some point. And why? Because as Greg McEwen reminded us at the beginning, it's so hard to say no, and because it's equally hard to say yes. As Seth Godin put it, the resistance is real indeed, and it fears being best in the world. It fears being on top. It fears being seen as the winner. So the resistance is just fine with pushing you to wander, to quit the wrong things at the wrong time, and most of all, to seek out the sinecure of mediocrity. The resistance will cajole and wheedle you until you compromise and get stuck with what you believe you deserve instead of what you are capable of. Now, whether you've listened to this episode feeling on top of your game or deep down in the pit of a dip, no others have been there before. Work to say no to what leads you away from your brilliance, from your highest value. And work to say yes to what brings you closer to everything you are capable of. This episode was produced and edited by Sean McMullen. Special thanks to the whole What Works team, Shannon Paris, Kristen Runvik, and Marty Seafelt on their support of this show. I also want to thank Creative Live, Chase Jarvis, Craig Swanson, Elizabeth Madariaga, and Michael Karsh for partnering with us for the first 120 episodes and helping me shape the show into what it's become. If you love candid conversations about small business and the ups and downs of entrepreneurship, please join us at the What Works Network. Membership is open until April 26, 2019. And right now we're offering a special seven-day free trial to all new members. Go to explorewhatworks.com slash network to learn more. That's explorewhatworks.com slash network.